Welcome to Daily Kosa's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitsis, the founder of Daily Kos and your co-host, along with senior political writer Carrie Eleveld. If you want to join the conversation, we record the podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. I'm Marcos Molitsis, and I'm here with Carrie Eleveld. And we're going to be talking today about our guest today is going to be Ross Morales Rocchetto. He is the co-founder of Run for Something. They are core progressive infrastructure, one of the most incredible organizations to come out of the resistance. It was that 2017 period after Donald Trump was elected. They're focused on getting young people to run for office. And 2022 is the most important election of our lifetime. Again, our democracy is on the line. And so we're going to be talking with Ross about the efforts they're doing in recruiting candidates. And I'm interested, Carrie, to find out just how um, that recruiting is going. Because yeah. there's so much talk about how how progressives are, are demoralized or not as revved up as conservatives. It will show up in recruiting if if uh, indeed progressives are as as um, sort of tuned out as a lot of the conventional wisdom says they are. Well, and also there's there's been an attack on people in public office. I mean, you know, you have to like literally think, gee, if it comes to me putting, you know, getting getting harassed and getting death threats, do I want to do that? Is that something I want to take on? And I think that I don't think I think people really do are now taking things like that into consideration when they decide whether they're going to run for something. But anyway, we can get into that. Yeah. Yeah. And especially so if they're women or candidates of color. Mm -hmm. Yep. Or even worse, both. Or queer, or yeah. yeah, or worse, or both. You know, I yeah. think any anyone who isn't like a white male has to think about it. Exactly. Before we have our guest on, Russia and Ukraine clearly driving the news. It's the top headline, and um, deservedly so. Yeah, we have a resurgent Putin who has decided um, bizarrely to declare that the Soviet empire is back on the table and that he is willing to rebuild that empire by force. And Ukraine is first on the agenda. And Russia has been doing this on a low level for years. Um, there are breakaway regions in Ukraine and Moldova, in, uh, in Georgia, not Georgia, our Georgia, but Georgia in Eastern Europe. And he's done that both to, to create instability in those countries, but in large part, to put pressure on them not to join NATO because right. these Eastern European countries after the collapse of the Soviet Union had a choice to make and they could look to the West and the economic prosperity of the West, or they could look to <laughs> Russia, which hasn't oh. economically prospered anybody. Right. And they can so look they, to the bare shelves on the Russian, you know, <laughs> right. you go to the grocery store and the lines and things like that. And, you know, what's the choice? And surprisingly, almost nobody, the, uh, most of these countries have looked to the West for uh, their future. And, and the lone holdouts are places like Belarus that have strong men in power that have eliminated free and fair elections because they don't have the, the, the popular support of their populace, which sort of, sort of kind of almost you know, shows us why the modern Trumpian conservative movement looks to them as a model, because they also have lost the support of the American people and are relying more and more on undemocratic suppression of the vote to be able to win elections, knowing that they can't trust an actual free and fair election. So where um, people have free and fair elections, like 
Ukraine and uh, the Baltic countries, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, they've looked to the West and it's becoming clearly it's, 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 it's really rankled Putin. He considers it a source of natural shame. He called it the worst catastrophe of the 20th century, the collapse yeah. of the Soviet Union. This is a century member, yeah. two world wars, the Holocaust. I, I got to tell you, so it, it's clear that this is something, I mean, to have him articulate it and say it um, in that speech he gave made it really clear. Um, and But, you know, if you listen to anyone who knows anything about Putin talk about his background and his beliefs, everyone I've heard, you know, because I'm not like a Russia expert. So I listen to people who are a lot smarter than me about Russia and, you know, Eastern Euro- Europe and all that stuff. And they will they will say that, Putin for years has clearly considered the breakup of the Soviet Union to be like the biggest catastrophe of his lifetime or of the entire empire's, you know, history. So, but let, let's get back to one thing you said, which because Putin made clear basically in that speech that he gave a couple days ago that there was going to be no deterring him from doing what he was going to do. Right. It seemed like he was already headed on a certain trajectory and he was he was going to he was going to do whatever he was going to do, whether that was going to be, you know, this invasion of, of two regions or whether it was going to be a, a bigger eventual full scale invasion of Ukraine. He, he was on that course. And but I, you said Putin has bizarrely decided to do what he's done. So in your opinion, given that he's articulated that he thinks that this is the biggest catastrophe catastrophe for the Soviet Union ever was the breakup of it, right? Um, Why do you consider it bizarre that he decided to do this? The sort of stated goals as as the crisis was unfolding was, you know, the U.S. was realigning towards China, towards containment in the South China Sea. And Russia felt that they were being sort of elbowed out of the world stage. You know, he considers himself a great power. And so when he began to, to you know, rattle those sabers, his whole idea was that NATO is threatening me and I feel threatened and you guys are being antagonistic. And by letting Ukraine in, you're putting nuclear weapons on my doorstep. Now, keep in mind, all of this could be really handled by treaty, right? You can, you can have another intermediate nuclear you know, missile treaty that that takes out those weapons from Europe. I mean, there's, there's ways to handle that. But he this was all pretext. And then there was he was, you know, building up this propaganda machine talking about how Ukrainians, the Ukrainian government was conducting atrocities in this sort of Russian separatist corner of Ukraine and eastern Ukraine. And I think Biden handled this absolutely brilliantly because from the beginning, which wasn't was true, t- which just to be clear, yeah, wasn't true. Was not true. Yeah. And Biden came out and said, he's decided to invade. Watch the false flag. He's in th- decided to invade. And he said this for a couple of weeks, right? To the point where he even had specific dates. They're going to attack on Wednesday. And then Wednesday came and nothing happened. And some, you know, pro-Russian people are like, oh, Biden's, you know, he's gone crazy. He's, he, they, Russia said they're not going to invade. And, but... Let's let's explain what a false flag is for people who don't know it, because the right wing is super, super into yeah. false flags. Right. But um, just so, just tell 
Yeah, yeah. False flag is just making up a, a Casas Valley, like the blowing up of the main during the Spanish-American War in Cuba, right? It's just creating a pretext for an invasion that we you can just look to our history just recently in Iraq, right? Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction. And you had uh, Rumsfeld during the East and the West and the North and the South. <laughs> and so uh, you had Colin Powell go to the United Nations and, and make up a bunch of stuff, right? Those were all sort of false flags. It's claiming that you're in danger because of X, Y, and Z. Iraq never posed a threat to the United States. Ukraine does not pose a threat to Russia. And so the clearly, and you know, I, I shouldn't say clearly because really nobody knows Putin's actual thinking, but it seemed to be that he was gonna, they were gonna dig up some, some mass grave sites and they were gonna shell their own town, which they did. And then they were gonna blame it on Ukraine. And then they were gonna, they were gonna have to invade to to uh, to rescue those poor Russians that were being massacred by the Ukrainian government. That was the entire plan. They were building up for that. The propaganda machine was spewing that stuff out. Russia exports two things to the world, petroleum, natural gas, fossil fuels, and disinformation. And that machine wasn't full-fledged, but when it... Fi- but. Biden kept calling it out. Oh, yeah, look, false flag, false flag. And then people were looking for that false flag. So when Russia claimed that the uh, that their towns were being shelled, that Russian ethnic Russian towns in that occupied region were being shelled, there were actual journalists in the area that said the shelling came from the Russian side of the border. So it was clear that he wasn't gaining any ground on that. And for whatever reason, he just decided to come clean. And so it was never about his security, about it was about Russian imperialism and the old borders of the Soviet Union. And maybe he expected NATO to fracture. I mean, Germany depends on Russian natural gas. You know, you have t- Turkey and Poland, which had taken autocratic turns. You know, they're, they're straying yeah. from their democratic. There, there's a lot of fissure points. In NATO and the idea that NATO was going to put itself at risk for Ukraine, are they really going to do that? And th- that miscalculation has been beyond anything for, for two major reasons. One, it has revitalized the alliance. I mean, Turkey and Poland have become the single two most ardent supporters of Ukraine right now. And they're the ones that are sending the most military weapons and, and support to Ukraine. And um, Finland, and Sweden, who were historically neutral, even through the Cold War, have now come out and said that, you know what, I think we're going to have to reconsider this. So if Putin's actual goal was to roll back NATO's borders and to claw back some of these these um, states that used to be in Russia's sphere of influence. And drive has, a wedge. Drive a right. wedge in the alliance. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, he doesn't have Trump to be undermining the alliance anymore. And Trump, by the way, came out and said that, that Putin's invasion was brilliant. Genius. Genius. Okay, genius. Yeah, ge- sorry. I mean, Brill's genius, whatever. Well, but let's you know, be accurate. Was, let's be accurate. <laughs> it was genius, quote unquote. Genius. Genius. He still so, wants that Trump Tower in Moscow, so he's still still angling for that. Anyway, go ahead. So there was there was really no current movement towards Ukraine joining NATO, but now there's obviously um, if Ukraine can withstand this coming invasion, whatever it looks like, I think it'll be. Great. The other piece is that Russia had troops amassed in Belarus, which is only about five hour drive from Kiev, the capital of Ukraine. And it was they were they were putting pontoon bridges to cross those rivers, you know, on the border. Didn't happen. So I put all that attention and removing that cost of the belly, I think, has made Russia do something a lot lower 
danger or lower stress and just, you know, go into their occupied already, which they already had troops there anyway. So it's not right. like, but that has triggered all the sanctions. And also, so, yeah, that other piece is just the economic damage that this is going to cause eco- Russia. Right. Economically, can can Russia even handle, the, you know, like some sort of full scale invasion? We have to remember, I think I heard Kiev is is like, has like is a city of like three million people or something like that. And right now, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I think Russia has something like on the order of 190,000 troops or 200,000 troops or whatever. But like how many troops they would need to be to to take over that city and actually control it when it's a city of, you know, mostly western aligned people who seem very willing to fight for their country. I mean, that's kind of, I I just think logistically, it seems like very difficult. It would be a massive operation that would cost billions and billions and billions of dollars. And economically, I just wonder if Russia can even sustain that. Yeah, we don't, we don't have the time to fully get into it, unfortunately, but just to to keep it short, uh, Russia's GDP is around $1.4 trillion. It's, it's, it's less than Canada's with five times the population of Canada. It, it's, it's, it's an impoverished country in any way. It's entire 60% of its budget is, is, uh, fossil fuels. Now you have Europe cutting off, not only just cutting off, um, access to, to pipelines in the short term, which will also hurt Europe, but it's generated in Europe a new willingness to transition to, to renewable sources of energy because they realize that they are at a strategic national security disadvantage against Russia because they were trying to use natural gas to, to um, basically to hold Europe hostage on, on this issue. So long term, you have a situation where its largest foreign export, and the only one with money, I mean, China's got plenty of its own supplies, Places like Kazakhstan and Mongolia, maybe they'll buy some of that natural gas, but not at the prices that Europeans are paying because they just don't have that kind of money. So they're losing their most lucrative market long term. And in addition to not having access to the to the financial system, you know, their debt instruments now can't be traded. You know, they're under sanction. So this is a country that was already restless because of its economic conditions. There's been mass protests in Moscow over the last couple of years, and they've been brutally repressed, and its leaders are imprisoned or, or thrown off balconies. But you have a restless population, and military adventurism is expensive. I mean, it was expensive for the United States, and we have a $19 trillion GDP. A country like Russia with a GDP of $1.3 trillion, one-twentieth that of the United States, is even less capable of sustaining a long-term military um, assault and occupation. And Kiev can be leveled. I mean, Russia has, if nothing else, they have thousands of missiles, right? They can rain missiles down. But like we saw in Iraq, right? Shock and awe. You know, 20 years later, there, it was still a restless population in you know places like Afghanistan and Iraq. And so it is a lot more difficult. You can, you can turn a city into rubble. All you're doing is you're creating a lot of places for partisans to hide and snipe. And right. so it, it's, there, there may be a reason he did not march on Kiev. And it may be that cause benefit analysis. So maybe he thinks he'll park out in, in the Donbas region, this Russian occupied part of Ukraine. Maybe he thinks he'll, he'll, he'll ride out uh, Western sanctions that the West will get bored and, and look elsewhere. And maybe that's what he's thinking. 
who knows? Nobody knows what he's doing. But it's what we know is not rational. Their own history with Afghanistan shows that this is costly and dangerous. Just recent world history with the United States shows. I mean, all we have to do is look at Afghanistan from last year to see the cost of military adventurism. And one of the things, as we alluded earlier, Russia does not economically sustain its, its proxies. So you look at eastern Ukraine, this Donbas region that's occupied by Russia. It's an economic basket case compared to the rest of Ukraine, which is actually rising economically. And that has led even Russian speakers in Ukraine to to turn against the idea of Russian um, occupancy. So it's it's this is going to be an ongoing issue. And I'm sure we'll talk about it in episodes to come because this isn't going anywhere. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> All right, let's talk 2022, though. Let's let's talk domestic politics now. <laughs> All right, our guest today is Ross Morales Rocchetto. He's a co-founder and co-executive director of Run for Something, which, Ross, you weren't here earlier, but I was talking about how it's core progressive infrastructure and one of my favorite organizations to come out of the resistance in 2017. You guys are doing incredible work, and I'm really looking forward to talking to you about that. Ross got to start working for Julian Castro as is in his mayoral campaign in San Antonio. So you're Texan. Let's talk about Texas, too, if you, if you don't mind, because Texas is, is hot, hot, hot this year. So, Ross, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So, Ross, we like to ask our guests this sort of broad origin story question, right? I mean, you here you are working in politics. Uh, you have for a while. But what got you interested into politics and how did you find your way into working for for our country yeah politics was like my third love my first was basketball uh and i wasn't very good at it uh which i learned at a pretty early age the second was space i actually wanted to be an astronaut for a really long time and then when i realized i was never going to be an astronaut as you can see i'm wearing glasses right now it was never going to be a thing for me uh, and then when I was in high school, I had a government teacher who, as part of our extra credit, um, or as part of the class, and for a little bit of extra credit, uh, asked us to go volunteer on a campaign. And so I went out, I found a campaign. I'm from Houston originally. I went out and worked for a guy named Ron Kirk, uh, who at the oh, time yeah. was the mayor of Dallas and was uh, a U.S. Senate candidate. We didn't win, uh, but it was really, really fun. That's a story uh, of Texas Democrats, right? So, <laughs> mm-hmm. so no yeah. shame. It's a long story about Texas Democrats. And we, you know, I came, I came out, I came, I went into that just thinking like, oh, I'm going to volunteer on a campaign. It's going to be great. I left there, you know, organizing a bunch of college or a bunch of high school campuses around the city to go volunteer for Ron Kirk. And that was, I didn't know it at the time, but I, that was, that was the beginning of my organizing. And it just, honestly, it just took off for me from there. So, okay. let's, so run for something then. So somehow run for something. So I guess Donald Trump wins. I guess that's the beginning of that story, right? <sighs> yeah. Take it from there. <laughs> um, I was working at the time for a democratic pack called For Our Future, largely uh, like a union organization. Uh, doing a lot of organizing work in swing states. And I had a great time. It was really fun, and except for election night. And I left election night Bereft. feeling, yeah, feeling, <laughs> feeling away about a lot of things. And you weren't, you weren't the only one, Ross. You know, yeah. you were, <laughs> I'm starting to regret uh, bringing it up. I'm, I'm, uh, it up. No, I'm, 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 I'm remembering. 
my wife and I just talked about this. We had a long car ride yesterday, and we actually just relived some of this stuff. So, you know, at the Marcos, time- from, from, from now on, Marcos, I'll ask the question. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm sorry, Ross. Go no, ahead, No, it's please. totally. Uh, I was on loan at the time from a political consulting firm, and- you know, I just, I didn't feel like I, I didn't want to go back to consulting. What I thought I was going to do was bounce around the country for a few years, managing upstart progressive candidates running for Congress, governor, Senate, et cetera, in like contested primaries. That was going to be my thing. And when Run for Something first got kicked off, I was actually in L.A. Uh, working on a congressional special election uh, which was a 34-way primary, which uh, I don't know if you've ever done <laughs> work in California. It's a lot. Um, you know, we didn't win, but the person I work for is now a state assembly member uh, for an overlapping district. So, you know, we did all, we did all right. Uh, but around the same time, I was talking to my co-founder, Amanda, about the beginnings of Run for Something. We put together some plans. We built a website, we talked to a bunch of people that we knew, and then, you know, we launched a form on Inauguration Day, and we thought if we were lucky, maybe 100 people would sign up. Uh, and the first day, about 1,000 people signed up. What was the ask? What was the ask? Run for office. Period. Like, do it. Yeah, Donald Trump is president. You can run for school board. You can run for city council. You're qualified. And Were you even offering anything in return or was it just literally like do something and do like this incredibly important thing? It was that. And, you know, we thought we were going to have time. We thought like not that many people would sign up. We thought we'd have some time to build out some programming. It was going to be a side hustle for both Amanda and I. <laughs> and then all these people signed up and, uh, you know, we looked at each other and said, I don't know if I'm allowed to curse, but I'm about to. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> We said, like, holy shit, we need to do right by all of these people. And we just, like, put our heads down and started building and building. I don't think you would build – nobody in their right mind would try to build an organization structured the way we are, like, if they didn't have to do it out of necessity. And it turned out that, like, it was something that no one had ever really tried before in the specific way that we were doing it. So in, in what way? So most organizations like focus very specifically on some swing states or specific districts or places that like, you know, are of high value for whatever reason. We decided that we were going to help people everywhere. Didn't matter the state. We have people who have told us we have over 100,000 people who have told us they're interested in running for office in every straight, every state, including D.C., across the country. And, you know, nobody had ever really tried to build something at that scale before. And honestly, it wasn't possible before. Technology wasn't where it needed to be, like, in the years before. There's tons of off-the-shelf things that we can use now that just weren't available, uh, like, 10 years ago. Uh, so, honestly, it was a confluence of a lot of events that sort of led to it. So, I want to get back to everywhere at one point, but I have a first question, which is, how are things going for you this year relative to some other years? Like 2018 was clearly a banner year for you guys. It was, you know, I, I think the thing that we didn't necessarily expect that this year was going to be a huge recruitment year. We targeted a goal of having 25,000 new people sign up for our <laughs> pipeline. We're well over halfway past that, you know, in like the end of February. January was the best recruitment month we've ever had. Um, people are excited. 
people are ready to go out there and like make change. That doesn't mean that, I mean, as you mentioned, that doesn't mean there isn't going to be harassment. That doesn't mean there isn't going to be a lot of honestly crappy stuff that happens to people. It is happening. Um, and it's something that we are working hard to think through and address. It's something we also saw last election cycle in 2021. Uh, so it, it's for all of the talk that we hear about there being no energy on the left. That's not what we're seeing. All right. So now I don't know if there's like the politically appropriate answer and then the no bullshit answer. What's a no bullshit answer? That's the no bullshit answer. Right. People are running. <laughs> people are people. No, seriously, people are running everywhere. And the thing that we found actually during the Trump years, we did a bunch of research on folks who were coming into our pipeline and telling us they were interested in running for office. And a thing that we found like super consistently is people who said that they were running because of Donald Trump didn't actually become candidates. The people oh. who did end up becoming candidates and running were people who said, I want to solve a specific problem in my community. I want to represent like a certain group of people from my community that haven't had a voice like at the governing table before. Those are the people that we found were stepping up and actually running. And I think that's largely what we're seeing right now is that people see problems in their communities. They're fed up. They don't feel like government is working for them and they're stepping up and deciding to do something about it. So historically, the kind of people that ran for office, first of all, Democrats have been absolutely atrocious at running for lower office, the school mm -hmm. boards and the county boards and that stuff. The people who did run for office were usually white, wealthy, male lawyer types, more often than not, maybe some finance people, uh, because they had the resources to be able to do something that's incredibly complicated. Just filing out the paperwork is a legal, is a legal mess. Um, I don't know if by design to keep people out, but it's, it's a difficult process. And so what does your recruits, and I don't know if recruits is the right word, but the people that come to you for assistance, what does that look like? Yeah, so there's a lot of organizations out there that do different types of things for candidates. The thing that we do is we provide like one-on-one -on -one coaching support to candidates once they're running for office. We also provide tons of resources beforehand. You know, everybody who comes into our pipeline gets invited to a conference call. Every single person who wants one can have a one-on-one -on -one with one of our volunteers. This is 25,000 people get one-on-one if they want one, not everyone opts in, but if you opt in, you get one. And, you know, we have a really well-trained, like large volunteer base who loves to have one-on-one -on -one conversations with these candidates because like, it's fun, you know, like it's not, you know, it's not like hitting the send button on text messages, um, like for a couple hours at a time, they actually get to engage with another person. You're in a real conversation. We're getting information about those candidates. We're also training our volunteers to give out information on how to think about running for office and how to start taking the, the first steps. So, you know, for, for folks who are first coming in, like we're providing a very basic level of support. We're also sending them access to training resources that they can do on demand. We're sending them, you know, like templates for documents that they might they might need to end up writing all sorts of stuff. Once somebody is running and we endorse them, they get one-on-one -on -one support from a coach and every one of our endorsed candidates gets access to that. And that's, that's sort of like the place where we live in the general like progressive ecosystem. 
So since 2017, we're talking uh, 2018 cycle, 19, 20, 21, 21. So we're talking about four election cycles, two of them obviously off year, but I'm sure you still had candidates in those years. What kind of success have you seen with, uh, with the program? Well, first, there's no off years. Last year, we endorsed, um, in 2021, we endo- made about 412 endorsements. Uh, this year, we expect to make about 700. Uh, we have over 600. I think we have about 637 folks who are currently serving in elected office that we've been a part of helping to elect since we first got started. So, you know, there's there are people out there and there are a lot of people out there who are winning these races, even in, you know, even in 2020, where, you know, we didn't do as well down ballot, even in 2021, where, you know, we didn't do all that, we didn't do well in Virginia, you know, in both of those years, we had the highest win rates that we had ever had uh, as an organization. But the one thing I will say is like, we don't hold ourselves accountable to a win rate. And the reason for that is, we feel like if too many of our folks are folks are winning, that means we're not taking enough chances on people. We're trying to recruit people who have never run before, who are part of communities that haven't been represented in most in most of these cases. We're recruiting people who like share like the same types of experiences as the folks that they're living with. Uh, and, you know, a bunch of our folks are going to lose and we think that's OK. Uh, because we want more people running. We want to give more of them support. And we want to show people that, as you said earlier, running for office isn't just for white dude lawyers. Yeah, that's great. You know, I, I have honestly been critical sometimes of organizations like the LGBTQ Victory Fund and things like that, um, that you know, which they're doing. The, it's a good mission. You know, generally they're doing good work, but they always tout their win rate. And I always think, if that many, you know, if your if your win rate's going up every year, then aren't you just not taking enough chances? I mean, that's just very possible. Incumbents, and then you got your ninety nine percent win yeah. rate. Big deal. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't want to trash the whole organization, but I've just always been dubious about whether or not that's a really great metric. Um, you know, of course, you want to promote people getting into office. You don't want to be horrible at it, but you got to take some chances in places where we don't typically win, which brings me to my next question, because I have seen you um, and Marcos has pointed out run for something tweeting about uh you know, supporting candidates in rural areas. And specifically recently you tweeted out the, the organization tweeted out this, um, uh, this AP article that I think said something about, you know, quote unquote, the, the headline was like, the brand is just so toxic. And it was talking about Democrats um, being a toxic brand in rural areas of the country. Um, started out focused in a rural area of Pennsylvania, that article did. And you guys tweeted out, hey, we're here, to, we're just newsflash. Like, we maybe there are some, there's part of the Democratic apparatus that has, you know, abandoned this effort in rural areas, but we're here to support uh, people who want to run in rural areas. And I see this in the comments all the time in Daily Coast. Commenters saying, we feel abandoned by the Democratic Party because we, you know, we've, we're trying to do good work and we just don't feel like the Democratic Party, Party sees us. So talk a little bit about your rural efforts. Yeah, I think a thing that is sort of like baked into just what we do is meeting people where they are, working with them where they are, and also understanding that 
even if we don't win, there is value in having people run in a lot of these rural areas. We know that we're not going to win in a lot of these places. Before I get there, though, I want to like address like a the sort of like the broader question here, which is that a lot of people talk about how the Democratic Party doesn't have a good message, all that stuff. I'll say from our experience, the thing that we've seen over the last few years is, you know, if you run on the issues that people care about in their specific community, like that is when Democrats do better. That's when we see Democrats like overcoming like big odds and beating Republicans. A bunch of the races we work in are nonpartisan. And when we have Democrats, when we have progressives in those office in those races talking about the issues that are specifically relevant to their community, they do a ton better. And when they focus on honestly having one-on-one conversations with voters, it also goes better. I can't tell you how many candidates that we've talked to have said something to the effect of, you know, like I went and knocked on doors in my community and they said they had never seen, they had never had a Democratic candidate knock on their door before. And, you know, maybe we don't agree on a lot of stuff, but the fact that you sat there and engaged in a conversation you know, I'm going to vote for you now. I have a lot of respect for what you did. Might even demystify some of those mm-hmm. those rancid memes that they're seeing on Facebook and on, on Fox News. Exactly. I think, I mean, a thing I say often is that we let, by not having people out there organizing in these communities, people in rural areas see, get, the only exposure they have to Democrats is the memes on the internet and what they see on Fox News. When they have somebody who is from their community, who grew up in their community, knock on their door and say, I'm a Democrat, here's why, it changes things. It puts a different spin on it. It puts a face on what it might mean to be a Democrat in that specific area. And we don't do enough of that. We haven't invested enough of that in enough of that as a party, not even just even recently, but over the last 20, 30 years. Um, And we also know from our own research that going out, having candidates on the ballot in rural areas increases turnout for the top of the ticket. We have research that shows it. We've done it a couple of times now to verify across multiple election cycles. We see it over and over again. When we have people out there knocking on doors, doing organizing in their communities, it helps everybody. Right. Yeah, so just, to, just to reinforce that point, if you're running for office in rural Pennsylvania, and you lose, but you talk to a bunch of people and you got a bunch of people to turn out who normally wouldn't have turned out because they didn't feel like they had a choice and they're, they're Democrats, then you help potentially win, secure that Senate seat um, that we're trying to get, that open Senate seat in Pennsylvania right now at the top of, tic- of the ticket. So, it, so that, it's so important, to con- number one, to contest these races, and number two, to like be part of a bigger turnout effort um, and you might win. I'm not saying you won't. I'm just saying like, even if you lose, you've done a, done an enormous good. I'm sorry. Oh my God. So go one ahead, of the Mark. best thing. Yeah. One of the best things you can possibly do just for context. If you look at every battleground state this year, they all have extensive rural communities. Almost all states do. Right. But you're looking at Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Ohio, Texas. Uh, did I say Nevada? New Hampshire, I mean, North Carolina. These are all states with heavy rural populations. And we've been losing those at a clip about 85 to 10. That's where we've been. And every time we think we can't possibly lose even more in those rural districts, the next election comes around like it did in Virginia last year. And you're like, oh, 
like they somehow squeezed out even more people in those districts. And when you look at the top, the, the top lines, Democrats obviously dominate in, in urban areas and then the suburbs are a little more even maybe till Democratic these days. You get these these, you know, Biden won Wisconsin by what, 20,000 votes, right? He won Pennsylvania by 100,000 votes. He won Georgia by 10,000 votes, Arizona by 10,000 votes. I mean, there's not a lot of margins. So the difference between 85, 10 in those, in all these rural counties and 70, 30, we're not talking a big shift. We're talking just a minute, you know, few points in our direction across all those states, rural areas. Suddenly you have a little bit of room for lower democratic turnout or, or maybe the suburbs, something resonates like they did in Virginia with the, with, you know, the masks, you know, you never know what sort of, and so you get a little more cushion right there. And so this is why it's so important for those states. And to me, you can donate money, you can make calls. Like if you're running for office in those rural districts, you're doing one of the most important things you possibly can for, for the democratic party and our defense of democracy. Cause I honestly, you're probably not going to win, but it still matters hugely, perhaps more than anything else you can possibly do. Ross, you agree? Of course. Um, I also think you're doing one of the hardest things that you can do, like putting your name on the ballot, you know, and giving people the opportunity to accept or reject you is really, really hard, even for people with the toughest skin. So running for office is really difficult. The work is hard. They're doing, you know, they're doing the parts of democracy that very few people actually do. And, you know, in large part, they don't, they do it. People don't want to do it because they don't because of the way people, the way we paint elected officials, because like, you know, all of the, you know, so many elected officials are old white dudes that people don't see themselves, you know, in elected office, they don't see themselves as public servants. And I think, <laughs> you know, in these rural areas, it, you know, the way I think about a lot of our candidates, they're, they're organizers, they're people who are going out and doing that really hard work in their communities to organize them, whether they win or lose, they're building infrastructure there. We've had candidates, for example, who have told us, you know, they ran for like a local mayor of their local town. They lost, you know, they ended up uh, actually beating the incumbent, but they came in second place. Somebody beat both of them. And then, you know, they had a Facebook group with, you know, 400 people from their community in it and they use that to organize people on the platform that they ran on which specifically was greening their city and so they lobbied the city council and the new mayor and got a bunch of the things that they were trying to do uh if they had been elected mayor in the first place and so i think even when people lose they are building power in their communities by running for office and then can turn that power into like action I love I love that. I love that. You lose the election, but then you be then you become a power center for advocating for the issues you ran on and managed to get some of that stuff through city council anyways. So And it's it's building long term infrastructure. I like to talk about John Ossoff ran for the House special election and lost. But you build upon that. And yeah, that's higher level, you know, than a lot of what we're talking about. But it's it all it's all the same thing. You run for office once, you build base, you build fundraising email. People now know who you are. You have more chance to go to your community, talk to people, and you run again. And maybe for a different office. But you don't start from scratch. And speaking of starting from scratch, Ross, um, there may be people listening and saying, like, yeah, maybe, maybe I will run for office, but I'm just afraid. 
So you've talked about maybe there's a one-on-one consultation, but like what other concrete things do you offer candidates uh, that are, have expressed interest in running? Because it's terrifying. Even just, the le- like I said, the legal filings alone are daunting. We have all sorts of resources for people. So we have, for example, a guide on how to file to be on the ballot in all 50 states across the country that we created back in 2017 with the help of a team of volunteer lawyers. We keep that up to date. Uh, you can find that on our website, runforsomething.net. Uh, we, sh- we show people where they can run for office, what offices are available Ooh, that's a good uh, in their location. Um, you know, you can go to runforwhat.net and you can check that out. Runforwhat.net. That's cool. Mm-hmm. We do. We have partnerships with basically every major democratic in organization on the left who does training work. And we give all of our candidates access to those trainings. We often like get our partners to give seats specifically to folks who came in through run for something. We have partners who offer on-demand training so you can watch them, you know, like in the comfort of your own home in soft pants and you don't have to go out and talk to people. Um, You know, we have all sorts of resources here that are designed to help. Uh, All of our resources are are designed for people who are thinking about running for the first time. Uh, And, you know, it's hard. You said, like, in a lot of places, there are really basic questions like, which bank actually knows what to do to set up a campaign account in the place that you live. That isn't, not all banks know. If you just go into a random bank of America and say, Hey, I want to set up a campaign bank account. They're going to look at you like, you know, like you said, like you said something. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Like it's just, and it's really hard. You got, you know, like there are certain banks in communities, they handle all of the people who run for office. They know what to do. They know how to keep you compliant there's a bunch of stuff that you have to read. You know, you have to file with different ethics com- groups, you know, whether it's for your city or your county or your state. There's all sorts of stuff like that. We have resources to help navigate it. Uh, but, you know, it, the system is designed the way it is for a reason. It's intentionally difficult uh, to run for office. You know, a, a really interesting example is, you know, in a lot of places you have to get signatures to get on the ballot. In a lot of places, you can only get those signatures on a very specific piece of paper that you have to go to a county office to pick up. You can't print it out on your own computer. You can't do any of that stuff. You got to go to the office physically, pick up a bunch of the a bunch of like these sheets of paper to get people to fill out. Yeah, incumbents don't like to be challenged. No, they don't. Incumbents do not like to be challenged. Even party machines, because a party machine knows yeah. where to get that form, and they can go pick them up and hand them out to their preferred candidates. But if you're not part of this machine, correct? Yeah, you're also you're out. Not, you're yeah, you're shit out of luck um, if you're not a part of that machine. <laughs> so you're so, the machine now. Ta- talking about yeah, that's what we want. That's what we want. The new machine. Talking about machines, though, and this is not really a party machine as much as it's like a Trump anti-democracy machine. But we've had a f- couple people mention to us, um, and I personally, and you probably aren't either, sitting around and listening to Steve Bannon's you know, harangue of a podcast for several hours a day. But um, anyone who's actually doing that is taking note, and I see you shaking, nodding your head, so I, I have a sense you know where I'm going. But they, they are apparently just 
for spending hours, gobs and gobs of time telling people to run for these small local level, you know, ballot counting, uh, not, not higher. I mean, secretary of state, great, but that's like a big deal. You know, they're talking about and all these local precincts and whatever running um, to be the person who counts the ballots or maybe decides not to count the ballots or whatever they decide Mm -hmm. to do if they're given the, the leeway by a GOP legislature. But anyway, and it's frightening. And I, and I, I, gather that you've heard about this effort, this Bannon effort, and I just wonder what you make of it and sort of, you know, what your counter is, if there is one. It's scary. Um, You know, they, you know, they've been talking about this for months, like going back to 2021. Uh, You know, they're recruiting people for school board. They're recruiting people for these election administrator positions. They're recruiting people for precinct level positions. You know, they're recruiting for poll worker. You know, they're recruiting for the smallest, most local parts of our democracy because they know that that's actually where our democracy happens. You know, they're, these election administrators, in 35 of these states, they're elected. These are, these are the people that count the ballots. These are the people who organize the elections. These are the people who certify the elections at the county level oftentimes. They're the ones actually making the decisions about whose votes to count and whose votes not to count. Uh, And they're, you know, they are, they have smartly focused on it. We are also working with a bunch of partners across the democratic space to recruit and elect people in the 35 states that elect these folks as well. So we are also, in addition, they are engaged in it. We are also engaged in this fight. We're not going to give up a single one of these offices, because the thing that we know is even if let's just say in a state like Michigan, we know that, you know, one or two or three bad apples can change the outcome of the presidential election. The other thing we know is that a couple of bad apples in places like Idaho and Montana and Alabama can completely erode people's faith in democracy. And that's Mm -hmm. what they're trying to do fundamentally. And that's why we have to be focused everywhere. We can't concede any of these offices. We can't just, we need to focus on the swing states. They are vitally important, but we also need to be playing in these other places because we can't let them erode trust in democracy more than they already have. Yeah, you know, in Georgia, we we won narrowly because turnout in rural black Alabama, uh, Georgia uh, had record turnout. And these are people that had historically um, been disenfranchised and thought that there was no point in voting and, and they were given a reason to vote. And it's one of my hopes for Mississippi that is, is again, it's, it's heavily rural, but, you know, heavily black. It's got the largest percentage of uh, black population by demographics. It should be a purple state, but it's it's not, obviously, because of mass disenfranchisement and so you're right about the the idea of of making people lose faith in democracy making them think that their vote doesn't matter is a key component of that suppression effort and so i love that you guys are so engaged uh at all levels in all states because uh that's one of the best ways to combat that effort hey carrie do you mind if i switch gears and ask a couple questions about texas yeah absolutely take it away on texas hit it (laughs) <laughs> Ross, I'm going to give you a chance to, to to tell people what to do with Run for Something here really soon. But I just want to, since you're you're on the ground there, and uh, Beto O'Rourke is running for governor again, and I think that's the marquee. But we have all the statewide election uh, elected offices up for grabs. 
How does it look for Democrats this year? Do we have a chance of actually winning these races? Yeah, we do. I think the the book of a lot of people want to say that the book on the 2022 elections is already written. It is not. Are we going to win everywhere? Probably not. Are we going to like make massive gains all over the country? No, probably not. But we have an opportunity to make this an election where we hold our ground and maybe even win a little bit. Or we have an opportunity to make this election that looks more like 2010 when we lost thousands of, of seats for state and local offices, Congress uh, across the entire country. It doesn't have to be that way. And I hear a lot of chatter about, you know, like people feeling cynical about the 2022 elections right now. We shouldn't, uh, you know, just because the goalpost isn't, you know, sweeping generational sweep of the House and the Senate doesn't mean that there aren't important things that have to happen. Beto O'Rourke's race is one of them. Uh, I was heartened when he made his announcement that, you know, the thing, the number one thing he sort of hammered on was the government response to the ice storms uh, a couple of years back and how all the power went out and how the power companies, you know, were price gouging uh, consumers, charging them thousands and thousands of dollars to have their heat on. Uh, you know, Republican govern. You know, Republicans have controlled Texas for thirty years now since Ann Richardson. They still try to blame Democrats somehow. Yes, exactly, <laughs> and that's and that's the thing. Like, there is a track record of Republican incompetence and malfeasance in government in Texas that goes back thirty years now. And using the ice storms as a way to prosecute that case, I offensively, I think is probably the only path he has to winning. And I think it's the right one. Even if he doesn't win in Texas, you know, we have often been too timid to try to prosecute that point. Um, and I think him standing up and doing that is a really big deal for the state. Uh, and it's something that we just absolutely need to do. The, um, I know we've been tracking the, the border mission operation Lone Star where, you know, Texas Republican governor, Greg Abbott has, mobilized pretty much the entire National Guard. They did so like overnight to, to put them on the border to just sit there in Humvees and, and rot, basically. We've had, what, four or five suicides already as a result of the operation. Wow. Um, they're, they're, not, they're not really stopping anybody. That's what Border Patrol is actually there for. So it's all one big political stunt to show how he's doing something about the border, but people's lives have been uprooted. They've lost their civilian jobs. He cut what meager education resources he had to be able to fund this thing. So one of the promised benefits, uh, I'm ex-military. My son's in the National Guard. He joined in large part because of these education benefits in California. I'm not too worried about this happening, but it just offends me so deeply that these kids would sign up for education resources. And it has, I, I know, interestingly, he's being attacked on that from the left and the right because Alan West is actually hitting him on that as well. Is, is that an issue? Is that a story? Or is that sort of peripheral to, to the power issue? Greg Abbott is trying to do two things at once, and he's having a hard time with it. He has a challenge from his right, um, from somebody who has millions and millions of dollars to just throw at the race. He also knows that, like, his approval – you know, he – even though he pulls ahead of Beto right now, his approval ratings are low and are, are pretty low for an incumbent governor. And when you d dig even deeper into that, the numbers are even worse for him. People don't really like him. 
and they don't necessarily even know why they don't really like him. People just kind of know they don't really like him. Um, he doesn't really have a base. You know, I think that's a challenge. And I think that was the challenge that Beto ran into with Ted Cruz. That was sort of the Wally hit is that, you know, even though people revile and dislike Ted Cruz, he has a base of support. Like there are people in Texas who are Ted Cruz voters. There's nobody in Texas who's a John Cornyn voter. There's no one in Texas who's really a Greg Abbott voter. They're not coming out to vote for these folks necessarily. They're going out because they're Republicans. Um, and so he's voting against the D, right? That the whole D Democratic brand issue, which mm-hmm. yeah, we can't escape he's, in Texas. And he's trying, you know, he's trying to walk a line where he shores up the you know his Republican base while also not doing too much to piss people off, and he's not doing either particularly well. Um, you can't underestimate him. He's going to have you know, whatever resources he needs for that campaign, you know, in a couple of weeks and a couple of months, he could raise a hundred million dollars because in yeah. Texas, there's no contribution limits no. Uh, for state level races. So, you know, he can just collect million and $5 million checks from his buddies. Uh, so he, he should not be underestimated. There's a reason why he is where he is. Uh, but you know, he's, He's trying to do a lot of things right now. He's doing them all poorly. And honestly, the people who are suffering are actually the residents of the state of Texas right now. Is there any one more question? And because we're running out of time. And sorry, Carrie, I've been totally monopolizing this. Um, the has the abortion issue shown up in the race at all yet? And particularly, we always look at suburban white women as as sort of that swingy group. And is there is there any chance of the abortion issue actually having an impact on the race? Yeah. I mean, I mean, if if the Supreme Court does what we all think the Supreme Court's going to do, it's you know, we saw that it motivated people in Virginia like we can you can see it in the data. It's just their people were more motivated than our people were in 2021. And, you know, also there's there's a lot to be said about the the campaign that got ran there which is a whole thing for a different time um i think it will be an issue i think it's going to be an issue that hurts republicans especially because if the supreme court does what we think it's going to do then the people who have been single issue voting on that you know on the right for years and years will have gotten the thing they wanted and so they're not going to have a lot of motivation to specifically go out and vote our people are going to have tons of reasons to go out and vote. The same reason uh, they had for the last 50 years. Yeah. Exactly. And also, like, if you look at the polling, like, seven, like, it's like, it's the numbers are staggering. It's like 65, 70% of people don't actually want to see Roe v. Wade overturned. Even a ton of Republicans don't want to see Roe v. Wade underturned for the reasons that we all know about. Um, and so I, I just, it's not going to be a good political issue. It's really awful, like truly, truly, truly awful that this is the point that we had to get to on this issue. And it's it's going to hurt the Republicans in the midterms. Whenever I see Republicans at the federal level asked about this issue, they run away from it. They cannot wait to change the subject. They do not want to talk about it. But Abbott's running on it, right? I mean, Abbott's, Abbott and, and Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, they'll run on it uh, shamelessly. Am I, am I wrong? They're- they have to. They don't have a choice yeah. at this point. I mean, they signed it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. And also, Texas is unique from a lot of Midwestern states in that, like, the, the Ted Cruz vote that I talked about, like it's largely an evangelical vote. Um, and so they can't, 
they can't get out of a primary without those folks. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. they, they have to run there. They might yeah. try to back away from it in a jet. Gen- well, Dan Patrick will not back away from it in a general, but that's a whole, he's a whole different thing. Yeah. Greg Abbott might try to back away from it in a general, and he's not going to be able to. Right. So Ross, that's all the time we have. I'm going to give you one last chance to talk about how people who are interested in learning more about running for office can use your organization to do so. And, and also how people can donate to your organization because they love, they don't want to run for something maybe, but they love the work you're doing. So both, please. I love this. Y'all are the best. Uh, if you want to run for office, go to runforwhat.net. You can see what you can run for. We'll reach out to you and get in touch. If you want to make a contribution, you can go to runforsomething.net slash donate. If you want to just volunteer for the organization, go to runforsomething.net, click on the volunteer link. We'd be happy to have you. Ross, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, uh, we might be able to want to check in in a couple of months to see how things are going. I'd love that. Thanks so much for having me, y'all. Thanks so much. Oh, it's good. It's good to hear about. I mean, that is they had they had record recruitment in, in January. I didn't actually get I don't think we actually got the number, but they said they were looking this year. They were halfway. To end, yeah, they were halfway, they were halfway to 25,000. They yeah. said more than yeah. halfway. So. Yeah. But record recruitment, I mean, in what? They've had four cycles, right? So, I, I mean, I would think that you wouldn't be able to – to to. it was really interesting to me. I know we're, we're running short on time, but it was really interesting to me that um, he said the people who came out because of Trump weren't the people who actually turned yeah. into the candidates. And that I was remember. fascinating because I was thinking 2018 was a big recruitment year because people were so pissed about Trump and blah, blah, blah. But it turns out that isn't that wasn't the motivating factor necessarily. It was it was people who had a specific issue or a specific civil, you know, might have been like a highway in their town that they ran on, you know, or but some people ran specifically probably on, you know, related to civil rights issues and things like that. But, you know, it's that was really fascinating. And it's amazing that they've had such a good year um, starting off so far. Yeah, no, it's incredibly encouraging. And, and it sort of points to the picture that maybe 2022 is not going to be the standard midterm election for an incumbent party. And there's a lot of signs in that direction. And, and it's clear that both parties have challenges. But that's the thing. Usually in an, in an off-year election, it's the party in power that has a spotlight on them and the glare of all their issues. But thanks to Trump, thanks to, you know, even now with with Russia and Ukraine, like half the Republican Party is like pro-Putin. So they are they're in their own civil war. Marjorie Taylor Greene literally used those words to welcome the the, the civil war in her party. And so for Marjorie Taylor Greene, (laughs) if they all just shut up. You know, they would be in such good shape heading into November, but they can't. That's, Trump can't shut that's up. That's what Mitch McConnell wants everybody to just shut yes. up. He, he even put out an agenda because he didn't want anyone to know what they might do. He purposely didn't put one out. And then Senate, the Senate campaign chief, Rick Scott, puts one out today, and it is just a fascist disaster. Uh, it's just chilling. Bonkers. Yeah. yeah. Bonkers, bonkers. So – that's the situation. So it's good to see that we are recruiting candidates and that 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 grassroots from the bottom up part is critical component because we need to eat it to those Republican advantages in a lot of these counties and states. And every time you have a Democrat on the ballot, he or she is knocking on doors and making phone calls and connecting with people and getting votes that otherwise might stay home because they're maybe in a really Republican district. And half the time, there's not even a Democrat to vote for. 
So this is a sort of, this is what victories are built on in this sort of 50-50 battleground map that we're looking at. So I'm really excited about the work they're doing. Like I said, their core progressive infrastructure, run for something, run for some, uh, run for net. what? Run, run for what.net. Right. To run see for what. what dot, mm-hmm. Yeah. To see what to run for and run for something as a parent organization. You could donate, volunteer, um, and uh, participate and join the work that they are doing. So thanks so much to Ross Morales Rocchetto for joining us today and talking about the great work that they're doing and also a bonus Texas conversation. Kerry, thanks so much. Always so wonderful to be, to spend this time with you. Thanks to Kara and Walter and um, everybody that's part of the brief team that helps this happen on the back end. And thank you, the reader and listener, for being uh, by our side in this existential battle for our democracy. We need you. We're so excited to have you. And this is the fight of our lives. So glad that, glad that you're around. So thanks so much for joining us this week. Look forward to talking to you visiting with you next week. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at Daily Coast. See you next week.